On a cold January afternoon in 1649, Charles I, King of England, Ireland, and Scotland, was executed by his own subjects. His crime? High treason. This unprecedented act rocked the Three Kingdoms and the fledgling British Empire, and followed ten years of rebellion, revolution, and civil war. Pax Britannica, a history podcast on the British Empire, covers these incredible events, complete with interviews with world-leading experts on the period. Find Pax Britannica everywhere you find your podcasts, or go to pod.link pax. In July 1013, a massive fleet filled with thousands of fearsome Nordic warriors landed upon the shores of southeastern England. Like all the waves before them, they arrived unannounced, eagerly jumping out of their longships and splashing into the shallow waters of the beach underfoot. They were soon marching inland towards the nearby settlements, led by none other than the 53-year-old Danish king, Svein Forkbeard, the preeminent Scandinavian monarch of his time. The weathered lines around his face showed a lifetime of wariness, hard-fought challenges. Yet each one had been overcome, and the fire in his eyes continued to burn brightly, looking towards what was to be his crowning achievement. All too familiar with these lands by this point, this would mark the fifth time that he was landing upon English shores. In all four of the previous instances, he brought with him death, fire, and destruction wherever his boots had trodden. The paralyzing fear that went along with his well-earned reputation, garnered over numerous raids, must have been palpable, for the English inhabitants knew what to expect from this brutal king of the Norsemen. Upon seeing their approach, warning bells began ringing asunder the townsfolk shouting in fear and scurrying away into hiding spots in the desperate attempt to avoid his wrath. However, unlike the previous fire and atrocities that he had brought to their lands, his methods would change drastically from before, his warriors showing an unusual degree of restraint and discipline. Only a deeply respected leader of such a high caliber would have been able to muzzle such a group of unruly Viking warriors that would have been much more accustomed to jumping from their ships to immediately begin despoiling the nearest settlements. Things were different this time, however. His approach was purposefully restrained, because the desired objective had changed. The culmination of an extensive 10-year campaign of attrition, requiring patience and constant pressure to slowly but surely peel away the layers protecting and insulating England against foreign conquest. This was a masterstroke of long-term planning and strategy. As Forkbeard met with the first of the English nobles who knelt before him, offering oaths of loyalty and recognition of him as their new king, he could see it in their mannerisms, in their eyes. Their will to put up any form of resistance had been broken. Welcome to the Warlords of History podcast. I'm your host, Mark Pimenta. Episode 11 and the final, delving into the lifetime, motivations, and achievements 
of the Danish king, Svein Forkbeard. Before we get on with this concluding episode covering Forkbeard, you may want to start with episodes 8 to 10 to get a more complete picture of the environment and conditions surrounding this Viking warlord. How he rose to power in Denmark during a time of change, conflicting beliefs, ideologies, and instability, just to find himself on the verge of losing almost everything before rising up again in a stunning resurgence. Learning well the lessons from his mistakes and fostering his evolving ability to read situations and events, in some ways gaining pieces of luck, but then recognizing them as such and then exploiting them fully in order to make huge strides in order to solidify and consolidate his power. In episode 10, we focused on England, backtracking in the chronology a little bit to get a better historical understanding of the impact of the Viking raids and how Anglo-Saxon England changed during this period. How these raids then matured into something much bigger with the invasion of the great heathen army in 865, which led to the establishment of the Danelaw in northeastern England and the subsequent wave of migration of Scandinavians that arrived in England in the pursuit of productive lands in which to settle and grow their families, at the same time allowing the Kingdom of Wessex in southern England to survive and then thrive, eventually making headway to unite all of England under its banner, with of course the exception of the Danelaw that remained under Viking rulers, which wasn't to last beyond 954 when the last of the Viking rulers was ousted through the strength of a more united England. Although this essentially stopped the Scandinavian migration, the settlers that had previously traveled there remained there and were increasingly becoming entrenched as a part of the landscape. Through capable English kings such as Edgar the Peaceful, even the Viking raids themselves were significantly reduced for a period of almost 30 years largely due to a fleet that he had constructed and used to deter the would-be raiders. Not foolproof, but quite effective. Things were going quite well in England at this time. That is, until King Ethelred, the Unready, took his father's throne in 978, ruling with a dysfunctional flair that almost immediately began unraveling the strength that had been forged by his predecessors. A young, misguided king advised by a group of squabbling and self-interested nobles that were jockeying for the king's ear and thus power by proxy, while increasingly neglecting the duties of the realm, not to mention neglecting their naval power with Edgar's fleet that fell into disrepair. Like predators sensing the weakened state of their prey, this spurred a renewed surge of Viking activity, Norsemen that jumped in to take advantage of the instability, with raids regularly reoccurring from the 980s onwards, which in 1002 resulted in a catastrophe for a huge number of the Scandinavian settlers residing in the region that had been known as the Danelaw. When the beleaguered King Ethelred, unable to defend his nation against these invaders, but still looking to exact revenge, commanded the St. Bryce's Day Massacre leaving thousands of people of Nordic ancestry murdered in cold blood. Prompting a brutal response from Svein Forkbeard, who led a devastating raid into southern England in 1003. 
When we last left things off in episode 10, it was late 1004, and Forkbeard had just opted to return to Denmark. Following the two-year stint during which he laid utter waste to huge portions of southern and eastern England, devastating these lands in the pursuit of plunder and in retribution for the St. Bryce's Day Massacre, culminating in the bloody slog known as the Battle of Thetford, about 50 kilometers to the southwest of the present-day city of Norwich, which had proved to be an exceedingly tough engagement with the English forces that, despite ending up in a draw, had resulted in serious casualties among the Danes. Although Forkbeard likely could have continued raiding in a more limited capacity, or simply stay in the vicinity of England like he did during the 990s while calling upon reinforcements to bolster his strength, both of these paths became unsustainable because, in addition to his army's weakened state, keeping his troops in field and figuring out a way to keep them fed was going to be more than a challenge in the face of a famine that had begun to unfold in England. A disastrous growing season in 1004 woefully resulting in wheat and barley crop failures, the main cereal crops of Anglo-Saxon England, certainly made much worse in the southern and eastern portions of the kingdom following the mayhem that Forkbeard had brought to their lands, the effects of which would cause continued harm and misery well into the following year, only beginning to see signs of recovery in late 1005. Another factor that drove Forkbeard to return to Denmark and as you may recall from events back in episode 9, he previously learned the hard lesson of what could happen if you left your kingdom unattended for too long, unless it was in the hands of someone that he could absolutely trust. And while he did have his sons, Harald and Canute, being that they were in their mid-teens at the time, they were still too young, too untested to be left to rule in his absence for a prolonged period of time. Upon returning to Denmark in late 1004, Forkbeard had clearly achieved what he had set out to do in response to the St. Bryce's Day Massacre, rendering severe retribution and leaving large sections of southern and eastern England in tatters. He was pleased to find that his sons, particularly his eldest, Harold, had done a pretty good job of handling things back home in his absence. Undoubtedly helped as we covered back in episode 9, by his earlier internal house cleaning that eliminated any serious opposition to his authority. As such, there were no remaining contenders, foreign or domestic, that were willing to even entertain challenging him for the position, otherwise risk invoking his wrath. This was an important piece of the puzzle that would give Forkbeard confidence to act upon his strategy to topple Ethelred from his throne and replace him in the seat because even more importantly than the vengeance and riches that he took from England, he also gained key insights, helping to etch out his game plan to conquer the English realm. In the middle of all that plunder and violence over the past two years, information was another valuable commodity that he was eagerly extracting, and would have been regularly interrogating and inflicting torture as well, on anyone of note that had nuggets of info to offer up, through which he would have learned firsthand a great deal about the social and political climate in England, allowing him to crystallize his strategy on how he was going to deliver on his coronation vow 
made back in 986, and take England for himself. A strategy that we touched upon towards the end of episode 10, best described as a war of attrition. Relentless assaults and action to steadily drain their resources, economically, militarily, exploiting the lackluster leadership and the cracks in the unity of the English kingdom that had begun to take root once Ethelred had taken the helm. Unrelenting pressure over time was the cornerstone of this long-ranging plan. Forkbeard realized that the key to success in this marathon of an endeavor was being consistent in terms of harassing the English in order to drain their morale, sapping their will to put up a viable resistance. Understanding this, in the summer of 1006, the English, who were still reeling from the after-effects of the famine, were just beginning to emerge out of its terrible grasp, only to be met with another impending disaster, in the form of Forkbeard at the head of another fleet appearing off the southeastern coastline. Landing near the town of Sandwich, likely sailing inwards through the mouth of the Stour River. Purposeful, being that this area had not been touched as heavily in the raids that he had kicked off in 1003. Now, the strength of the force that he had brought with him was probably similar or a little larger to that of what he arrived with in 1003, meaning in the realm of six to 7,000 warriors or so, because this was not yet an army destined for conquest. Forkbeard, in the spirit of his newly hatched strategy, was fully focused on stirring up havoc through pillage and plunder to drain English resources and hamper their economy, and again ferociously began laying waste to everything they came across, including the towns and cities throughout the modern-day counties of Kent and Sussex, extracting vast amounts of wealth and leaving terrible misery at their backs. In response to this, King Ethelred commanded that an army be assembled, made up of units from Wessex and Mercia, and sent them hunting in pursuit of Forkbeard's forces. However, the English army spent the rest of the autumn and winter mired in a rather uneventful campaign against the Danes, never actually meeting them in battle, and essentially just chasing them around, who were completely undaunted, and so just continued looting in a business-as-usual type of manner. To make matters worse for the English populace, it wasn't just the marauding Viking army they had to be worried about, because this domestic English army was apparently causing a great deal of problems for the commoners as well. Keeping such a sizable army in field took loads of resources, in particular food to keep the soldiers fed. Accordingly, the domestic army at some point began resorting to commandeering grains, vegetables, and livestock from the local farms and communities wherever they went while chasing down those Viking raiders. This was a heavy burden to inflict upon the common populace, being that their food stores were already barely stocked as it was, only recently having emerged out of the famine. Which underlies another point, and a prevalent theme throughout Ethelred's reign, this of course being a severe lack of planning. While cobbling together a defending army was indeed a step in the right direction, much more consideration should have been given behind the logistics of keeping an army in field. 
This almost farcical game of follow the leader continued throughout the remainder of 1006, the English coming up empty-handed at every turn, while infuriating the countryside by consuming the resources of the populace, who were probably cursing Ethelred's name as often as Forkbeard's. Early the following year in 1007, Forkbeard then led his fleet westwards along the southern coast of England and began plundering from the area where the modern-day city of Southampton now sits, leaving their ships behind and marching northeast, further inland towards the town of Reading, then marching further north still to the town of Wallingford, taking them almost 100 kilometers from where their ships were waiting, almost as if Forkbeard was daring the English to meet him in battle. Which begs the question, why would Forkbeard risk that if his army was a raiding force? Well, it's tough to know for certain, but I think that there may have been an underlying message that Forkbeard was sending to Ethelred in doing so, aggressively pushing inwards to demonstrate the inability of the English to stop him, perhaps in the hope of securing a hefty payout of Dangeld. However, nothing, not a word of response was offered up. That is, until Forkbeard started leading his army southwest back towards his longships. As we learned back in episode 10, in the events leading up to the Battle of Thetford, these were the opportunities that the English were looking for, so they could at least attempt to fight off the invaders. Whenever the Vikings moved far inland, this of course negated their superior mobility. Understanding that Forkbeard would soon be heading back to his ships, the English managed to bring their army right into his path, near the town of East Kennet, about 60 kilometers to the southwest of Wallingford. It was there that the English army gathered to make their stand, with the intention of forcing battle to drive the Vikings from their lands, in the hopes of mirroring the accomplishment of their countrymen back in late 1004 at Thetford. The English commander selected a defensible site just south of the Kennet River, using this waterway as a strategic barrier to enhance their odds of emerging victorious. But there was something else, almost mystical, about this area. It was close to the East Kennet Long Barrow, a rather large, human-made earthen mound that covers a chamber of stone within, one of several in the area, and one of an estimated 300 that have been identified in England to the present day. It was already an ancient monument at that point in time, roughly 5,000 years old, dated to the 4th millennium BCE, constructed during Britain's early Neolithic period, presumed to be a burial site, though the details on who and why they were buried there remain unknown. In addition to the natural defensive advantages that this site held, there may have been a spiritual connection to this place, invoking the strength of their ancestors to help them against these heathens from abroad. And really, they were going to need all the help they could get. Because I'm convinced that Forkbeard was smart enough of a commander to know that in risking going so far inland, getting locked into a pitched battle would have certainly been high in terms of probability. And he now had a better understanding of how the English operated in these types of battles, having learned a great deal from the Battle of Thetford. Unfortunately, we don't have a play-by-play -play historical account of how this battle occurred, 
However, the prevailing notion is that the English army took up a strong defensive posture, just south of the Kennet River, finding a fordable spot to act as the choke point, where the Vikings were likely to attempt crashing through. While keeping their backs to the East Kennet Long Barrow, as a fallback in order to leverage the higher ground to a tactical advantage. As Forkbeard arrived on the scene, surveying the defensive force arrayed against them across the banks of the Kennet River, he must have clearly understood their strategy, realizing that ordering his warriors to assault their position through such a narrow, fordable passage would have resulted in massive casualties. The keys to his success in the Battle of East Kennet would be neutralizing the two main strengths of the English, or at least the strengths that they possessed over his army. 1. Cohesion as a fighting force, fighting from a unified shield wall in a singular direction. This was when they were at their best. And 2. Their heavier reliance on missile weapon firepower, arrows and javelins. It was essential to neutralize these factors in order to get to hand-to-hand -hand combat as quickly as possible where he knew that his troops had the definitive edge. Though, I would also be remiss if I didn't include another theory put forward, that a portion of the English army were not as battle-hardened as those present at Thetford. Some of them simply conscripted locals thrown into the mix, holding whatever farm implements that could be considered as weapons. If that theory is true, and it is certainly not far-fetched, can you imagine the abject terror of these people, turned impromptu soldiers, what they must have been feeling? It's almost incomprehensible to ponder. Understanding all of this, I'm convinced that Forkbeard must have launched an all-out fierce assault after driving his troops into a frenzy, shouting of their bravery, duty, and obligations to the victims of the St. Bryce's Day Massacre. Forkbeard kicked off the engagement by launching an attack across the ford that the English had selected, in a furious charge to keep the defenders busy, while peeling off detachments of his army to cross the river in other spots up or downstream to where the English had amassed their army, pouring in on all sides of the defenders. To confuse, overwhelm, and ultimately throw a wrench into the organization of the opposing forces, while diminishing a concentrated target or direction for their arrows and javelins. What we confidently know, gleaned from all the accounts however, is that this encounter devolved quickly into a disorganized melee, with Forkbeard's forces wildly cutting into the defending English contingent, that buckled and then disintegrated in an epic fashion, with the Viking raiders emerging largely unscathed with few losses. The dismay over the result at the Battle of East Kennet was so severe and so devastating that it resulted in a number of interesting after-effects. Firstly, although King Ethelred had not been there in person, he became acutely aware that there wasn't much standing between him and Forkbeard's army. So he packed up himself and his court and moved it from London, further north into an area called Shropshire just to the west of the modern-day city of Birmingham, in central England, to ensure that he remained out of Forkbeard's reach. Secondly, the terrible morale coming out of that loss was felt far and wide, with fear and despair gripping all the remaining eldermen and lesser nobility, 
who remained locked up in their castles, not daring to come out, which left Forkbeard free to meander about in Wessex, looting and despoiling completely unchecked, devastating towns and anything else he came across with fire and destruction. In fact, things were getting so bad that, according to an account stated in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, for the people of Winchester, seeing the insolent and fearless army as they went by their gate to the sea, went and fetched them food and treasures. So great was their fear of Forkbeard that he seemingly didn't even need to go into towns and plunder it for himself. It was just brought to him. Utilizing this methodology on a grander scale, Ethelred, who was unable to stem the rising Danish tide through force of arms, then resorted to the promise of Dangeld, raising a dragon's hoard of 36,000 pounds of silver before Forkbeard was satisfied enough to stop and leave their lands, heading back to Denmark in late 1007. Although, by this time, huge swaths of Wessex had been left in utter ruin from an economic standpoint. This is a good spot for us to depart from the main story and meander down another path for a little bit to ask the question, how were Forkbeard and his forces able to be so effective against the English? A question that, at its core, is linked to the broader notion of English and Viking conflict. Because when it comes to pitched battles, despite the resounding success that Forkbeard saw at East Kennet, as we've learned, the result was not always so certain. And one could make a good argument that, as far as land battles go, the Anglo-Saxon forces gave as good as they got. Unsurprisingly, yet vital to this happening, however, was that the English actually had to be able to catch up with the Norsemen, who typically didn't venture too far away from their longships, simply because, on water, this is where the comparison between the two groups falls apart completely, as we touched on in episode 10 the Vikings facing virtually no resistance whatsoever once aboard their ships, sailing along the English coastlines, could venture in from place to place with ease, attacking with complete surprise on specific targets. And you could even liken them to today's special forces, something resembling Navy SEALs, going in, completing an objective, and then back out before a response could be levied. By the time the English managed to get a meaningful force in the area, the Vikings would be long gone, sailing off towards another destination, the only evidence of their passing being the towns and cities left in ashes. The only real time that an encounter was feasible was when the Norsemen ventured too far inland in their quest to pillage and burn. And these opportunities were rare indeed because they clearly understood their seagoing mobility as a distinct advantage, and were quite content to exploit it ad nauseum, using it to focus on wealth extraction, and, in this story, drawn out havoc, sowing seeds of instability in the execution of Forkbeard's plan of conquest. So what do you do when faced with problems like this wherever you look? Well, if you're King Ethelred, you find a bunch of people to blame for all the problems, and then you have them killed. Now there's a watertight method to overcome all the issues besetting your kingdom. Given the series of challenges facing Ethelred's rule, granted a great number of these being self-inflicted, 
the scope of these problems would have been enough to destabilize nations with far more competent rulers. But what if the court surrounding the king was already dysfunctional to begin with? As you can assume by now, the mounting pressures inflamed the dysfunction to new heights, devolving further with intrigue and blame going around, leading to murder and treachery within his court. Instead of focusing efforts and uniting to defend against the Vikings, finger-pointing and blaming became focal points of court life. At a time when English nobles and commoners were already falling dead in alarming rates due to the attacks, beyond those that fell by the hands of the Nordic raiders, others fell due to political murders that were sanctioned by the king. To illustrate this a little further, in the 1899 edition of the book Epochs in English History, F. York Powell summed up Ethelred's reign succinctly. Ethelred was not all like the great kings before him. He was cruel and foolish, and above all, he would not take good advice, but always listened to those who pleased him at the time. His reign was cruel at its outset, wretched in its course, and disgraceful in its end. It's quite astounding, really, trying to find people to blame for not being able to quell the marauding invaders when the root of the problem remained in that it was practically impossible for a land-based army to catch these seafaring foes. In the midst of all this mayhem, including heightened intrigue and murder in the English court, although late in the game, in fact 30 years into his reign, Ethelred finally came up with a viable plan to combat these raiders. Recognizing the futility of commanding his regional eldermen to gather troops and fight the elusive Danes on English soils. Following Forkbeard's departure in 1007, it appears that the importance of establishing an English naval presence finally clicked in Ethelred's mind. Borrowing from his father, Edgar the Peaceful's playbook, he realized that if the Vikings were to be stopped, combined arms, utilizing land and naval warfare in symphony was going to be of absolute necessity. Interestingly, however, what was going to unfold in the coming months the ambitious development of a fleet, the substandard nature of Ethelred's leadership, and thus the ineptitude of his subordinates, was all going to collide into an unceremonious flop. Although it started out as a promising venture. In 1008, Ethelred announced a kingdom-wide edict, all hands on deck so to speak, ordering a great mass of ships to be constructed, through a national building campaign happening in ports all over the country, which was an exceedingly resource-intensive and costly undertaking. A rather impressive accomplishment because of the speed in which it was completed. By 1009, just one year following the announcement of the edict, the historical accounts mentioned that a fleet worthy of seriously challenging any seafaring invaders had been assembled. As for how many ships, no exact numbers were indicated, but I would estimate well over 100, probably in the realm of 150 at most, paid for by taxes raised on the land-owning nobility. Although there had to have been some murmuring of discontent, since this group was already feeling somewhat financially tapped out, in part due to the hemorrhaging of funds extracted from them previously to pay for the Danegeld payments. Regardless of the costs, this was now their real chance of fending off Forkbeard and any other Viking leaders. 
and could have played a game-changing role in taking the fight to the Norse raiders before they ever landed on English shores. Yes, you heard me correctly, could have. Because yes, like all things that Ethelred seemed to touch, this too imploded in disaster. The newly minted fleet gathered at the port of Sandwich in the extreme southeast of England. Strategically, an excellent place to waylay the Vikings given their preference for raiding these lands, realizing it was just a matter of time before they returned to cause further havoc. Which was a good idea in theory and could have been an effective countermeasure, but ultimately falling into disaster largely due to those surrounding Ethelred. In an act that fatally quashed his last real chance of retaining his crown, one of the captains by the name of Wolfnoth took 20 of the ships for himself and went rogue, resorting to piracy. So Ethelred commanded another underling called Britric to go out in pursuit with somewhere between 80 to 90 of the ships. Just as Britric came upon the rogue fleet, as the fight ensued, a few ships had been destroyed, which would have still been palatable. But then, a sudden terrible storm took hold of the area, decimating the newly constructed fleet with only a handful in the single digits managing to make their way back into port. The impressive toil of the entire English kingdom, built at a great expense and their last chance to ward off the invaders all gone terribly awry, swiftly down the drain. For what it's worth, and hardly a consolation prize, the English were of course right about the Norsemen returning. Just a couple of months after the English fleet debacle, in the late summer of 1009, Viking longships were again spotted approaching their lands. However, it wasn't with Forkbeard leading them this time. Torkel the Tall of the Yams Vikings, the elite Viking mercenary order that we were introduced to back in episode 8, and that Forkbeard had been fostered within during his youth. Of debate is the degree to which Forkbeard supported this venture. However, given his position and stature, I find it hard to believe that he was unaware of Torkel's stated plans. At best, Torkel was directed or given his blessing by Forkbeard to go off and raid. At worst, Forkbeard would have participated by proxy, sending a contingent of his own ships under trusted warriors to have eyes and ears on the ground, feeding him information as to what was happening, considering how central England was to his future plans. In any event, in August 1009, Torkel the Tall, at the head of a huge fleet, landed in Sandwich, kicking off a two-and-a-half-year stint of destruction and plunder, on par with the level of carnage that Forkbeard had previously brought to their lands, concentrating his activities in southeastern and eastern England, and then moving into the interior, into the southern Midlands, just to the northwest of London where he ruthlessly sacked and pillaged numerous towns and cities, including Northampton, Ipswich, Oxford, Reading, Thetford, Bedford, and Thamesford. Widespread destruction of farms, small hamlets, and villages, exacerbating the disarray and deflation that had become the English realm. The English, with no fleet in hand to respond, were again reduced to chasing the Vikings around, some doing so half-heartedly, completely demoralized, and unwilling to commit to battle in order to preserve their lives. In the few instances that the English troops caught up with Torkel, 
Although the defenders fought bravely, the Nordic raiders again emerged victorious. Unable to do anything else, in 1012, Ethelred again turned to Danegeld to prevent further destruction, paying the invaders 48,000 pounds of silver. But then, and shrewdly I would add in, trying a different tactic as part of the terms adjoining the payout, with Ethelred invoking the if-you-can't-beat-them-employ-them type philosophy, offering lucrative, full-time employment to Torkel the Tall and his most loyal warriors, to which he agreed. While the bulk of the army that Torkel had brought with him returned to wherever in Scandinavia that they had come from, a meaningful and fearsome group of Vikings, just over 40 ships and their crews remained in England as mercenaries under Torkel, all on Ethelred's payroll. 1,000 kilometers away to the east, across the choppy waves of the North Sea, Forkbeard would have been getting regular reports and intelligence that allowed him to intently follow the situation in England, probably shaking his head in half amusement, half in disbelief, while learning of each subsequent implosion since he had left its shores in 1007. His strategy of waging a war of attrition had been helped by a number of surprises along the way, beyond the incursions that he had personally led into England, including the English armies despoiling their own lands, heightened treachery within Ethelred's court, then the English fleet being eviscerated with all the associated efforts and resources now sitting somewhere at the bottom of the ocean where the English Channel meets the North Sea and more recently, Torkel the Tall's two-and-a-half-year raid, in particular, the inability and half-hearted attempts of the English to put up any substantial resistance. In addition to that, Torkel's employment under Ethelred could not have been sitting well with him, considering this to be a betrayal of his kinsmen. In short, to say that things were not looking good in England would have been a gross understatement. While Torkel was in the midst of stomping throughout England, Forkbeard clearly understood that this end of a marathon was nearing, and far before the Dangeld payment was issued to Torkel, he had begun making preparations for a full-scale invasion of conquest. A huge show of force would be required, much larger in terms of soldier count than his previous incursions, in order to break the defenders and not necessarily through direct force of arms, but more so the threat or potential of it. The time was ripe, and the English were close to the breaking point. Resources, confidence in their king, and morale sufficiently drained by Forkbeard's estimation. Reports would have been flooding into Forkbeard, seeing the weakened resistance that England was putting up and finally resorting to employing those that had ravaged their lands, triggering a warning for Forkbeard to launch his attack, in part perhaps concerned that the ambitious Torkel might make an attempt on it himself, now playing such a prominent role in King Ethelred's security. One thing is for certain, Forkbeard was convinced beyond the shadow of a doubt that now was the time to make an earnest attempt on claiming the English throne. England was depleted, spent. The economy and infrastructure, particularly in the South, Midlands, and East England, largely in shambles. 
and coffers had been scraped to find the coinage to pay Torkel. Taking us to the event that we covered at the top end of this episode, Forkbeard's full-scale invasion to conquer England once and for all. Leaving the Danish kingdom in the care of his eldest son, Harald, in July of 1013, Forkbeard, with his second eldest son, Canute, who was in his late teens or early 20s, landed their massive fleet in southeastern England, near Sandwich. As for how large this invading army was, the historical details are again scanty in terms of actual numbers. However, I can't help but assume that it had to have been much larger than the forces that he brought with him previously, for two main reasons. Firstly, unlike his previous raids, the purpose of this campaign was definitively intended as a full-scale invasion of conquest. And so, to be able to scare the nobles into submitting to his will, despite England's already weakened state, the show of force would need to be large enough to ensure compliance. Secondly, Forkbeard would have wanted to be prepared and ready with enough troops to deal with the potential battles that he might be faced with, absorbing any casualties with enough remaining to still complete the conquest. As stated in the 11th century historical account, the Encomium Eme Regine, the king, supported by the council of his chief men, ordered that a numerous fleet should be prepared, and that warning should be given on all sides to the entire military power of the Danes to be present under arms at a fixed date, and in obedience to the king's wishes, to perform with utmost devotion whatever they were commanded. While the entire military power of the Danes is most certainly an embellishment for poetic purposes, for the reasons that I mentioned earlier, I believe that he would have had to have brought with him a sizable army of at least 10,000 warriors, which is still probably a conservative estimate. Another interesting feature of this invasion force was the fleet of longships that transported them across the North Sea. That had received a lavish facelift, no doubt at the expense of the previously pilfered English coins. Brightly painted in magnificent colors and designs in gold and silver, lavishly adorned with colorful cloths, and with birds, serpents, and dragons carved into the masts, stem, and stern posts, which are the front and the back of the ships. All of this intended to convey a message, or persona, to any that laid their eyes upon it, demonstrating the immense power and regal authority of the commander within. With this impressive fleet and vast army in tow, when Forkbeard commenced his invasion, he changed his approach and methods entirely versus his previous campaigns, being that his objective was fully focused on securing the English crown. Despite the shaking fear running throughout the inhabitants of the kingdom that expected the ferocity and harshness that typically coincided with his arrival, his invasion in 1013 turned out to be more of a political or diplomatic campaign versus a military achievement, though the army he had brought with him was extremely large, just in case it was needed. Forkbeard was astute enough to realize that to make his intent of conquest a reality, he didn't go on the warpath instigating fights, instead concentrating his efforts in obtaining the submission of the most powerful regional eldermen and nobles and much to the surprise of the English inhabitants, all too aware of Forkbeard's dastardly reputation, 
he imposed an unusual degree of discipline among his soldiers, who did not plunder at all. A rather impressive achievement in itself when leading thousands of Viking warriors through foreign lands. But even more importantly, this allowed him to coerce submissions to his authority as he went. Because really, the threat of the alternative was just too dreadful to contemplate. As calculated, the approach worked like a charm, with the nobles in the immediate vicinity of his landing in southeastern England quickly submitting to him, including handing over high-valued hostages to ensure their ongoing loyalty. He then led his fleet north into East Anglia, and then further north up the eastern English coast doing the same thing completely unopposed, securing additional support for him to take the English crown. The sighs of relief that the nobility released once they realized that he did not intend to sack, despoil, and kill must have been unmistakable. And it was becoming resoundingly clear to Forkbeard that England was indeed deflated, with no one showing any appetite to fight this prolific warlord. He then took his fleet further north, sailing through the mouth of the Humber estuary and then along the Trent River until he came to the town of Gainsborough, where he disembarked from his ships, planning to use this as a secure base while he completed the rest of his conquest on land. A strategic placement, also bringing him in close proximity to the city of York, where the Scandinavian settlements were densest and received the immediate submission of the communities in the area, including that of the exhausted and depleted nobles. While many nobles throughout England were disaffected with Ethelred's leadership, due to his numerous failings, the treachery and murder of nobility that their king commanded, this notion was especially prevalent to those in northern England, which Ethelred, who ruled from his power base in the south, consistently neglected and in some cases outright abused. Forkbeard was aware that many in the north had been alienated by Ethelred and leveraged the discontent to further his cause. It's abundantly clear that Forkbeard's diplomatic campaign would not have been as successful had it not been for all the enemies that Ethelred had fostered during his reign. For example, back in 1006, Ethelred's advisors influenced the king to have Elderman Elfhelm of Northumbria murdered and his two sons blinded. Accordingly, when Forkbeard arrived in Gainsborough with his fleet, the Elfhelm family immediately became local champions of his bid for power, linking their family with Forkbeard's through the marriage of his son Canute with Elfhelm's daughter, and then joining in with Forkbeard's army, including providing provisions and horses, before altogether moving southwards to demand the homage of the nobles in the interior, securing high-valued hostages in the process, which worked beautifully without any issues. Over the next couple of weeks and months, this became the regular cadence, with Forkbeard marching his army of Vikings into region after region, city after city, surrendering without any opposition. Ethelred's kingdom was unraveling all around him. In a last-ditch effort, he issued out commands to the regional eldermen to fight and resist to the last man. However, these orders fell on deaf ears finding no one willing to fight for their rightful king. Forkbeard's path towards conquest was unfolding with relative ease. That is, until he reached the vicinity of London, finding Ethelred and Torquil troops ready to oppose his takeover. 
Although some minor inconclusive skirmishes did occur, Forkbeer did not want to commit fully to battle just yet, so as to not disrupt riding the wave of momentum of binding nobles to his will. So he left a portion of his army there to keep the opposition defending London wary and sticking to the city, and proceeded westwards towards the areas surrounding Wallingford and Bath, with the bulk of his army to secure the allegiance of the western nobility, who, like everyone else, submitted to him and handed over their hostages. With nearly all of England having acknowledged and submitted to Forkbeard in his bid for the crown, Ethelred understood that all was lost and fled from London aboard Torquil's ships, eventually ending up in Normandy in exile, under the protection of his brother-in-law, Duke Richard II. The remaining forces arrayed in London, seeing their king flee in desperation and fearing the reprisals from the dangerous Viking monarch if they continued resisting, sent urgent word to Forkbeard, offering up their unconditional surrender. On Christmas Day 1013, Svein Forkbeard was declared King of England, ruling a North Atlantic empire that stretched across the North Sea, including Denmark and Norway, a concept that is traditionally attributed to his son Canute, but that from my perspective should rightly originate with Forkbeard. 220 years after that fateful initial Viking raid on the small English island of Lindisfarne in 793, the whole of the kingdom was now under the rule of a Viking king. Forkbeard set up his headquarters where he had left his fleet in Gainsborough, and from there began to organize and rule over the recent addition to his vast domains. However, his reign was to be a short one, and he was never actually crowned in a ceremony, because he died on February 3rd, 1014, having ruled England for only five weeks. As to how the 54-year-old Forkbeard died, the circumstances surrounding this are a bit of a mystery, with several explanations on how this came to be. Some historical accounts mention that he died as a result of injuries sustained after falling from his horse. Another possibility is that his marauding lifestyle of regularly being out in the harsh elements, hard fighting and hard drinking feasts finally caught up with him, which was probably happening frequently at that time with eldermen and other nobles hosting sumptuous feasts in his honor and hoping to win the favor of their new king. Lastly, another theory put forward that takes us into conspiracy theory territory, but is really not far-fetched given the many enemies he had made or the overall English discontent of a foreign ruler, was that he was poisoned, which certainly cannot be discounted outright. While many of the nobility were publicly fawning all over him, many would have secretly abhorred the idea of this foreign king ruling by right of conquest rather than through hereditary legitimacy. After his death, his embalmed body was then returned to Denmark for burial, although some confusion exists there too, with his final resting place being either Roskilde Cathedral in modern-day Denmark, or in one of the first churches now laying in ruins built in the city of Lund in modern-day Sweden, an area that at the time belonged to Denmark. As for Forkbeard's more immediate legacy, upon his death his eldest son Harald II was proclaimed King of Denmark, which of course included Norway, a position that he held until his death 
only four years later in 1018, passing away in his late 20s. Whereas in England, his second eldest son, Canute, who had accompanied Forkbeard during the 1013 invasion, immediately succeeded his father as the King of England. However, the bulk of the English nobility took exception to this and conspired in the background. Recalling Ethelred from exile in Normandy, that is, after making a number of concessions to the nobles and promising not to go off on a murderous spree. Despite everything that had occurred, the nobility still preferred the English-born monarch with rights of ancestry versus normalizing the right of conquest and the acceptance of a foreign king. Ethelred, backed by a united army, was reinstated as king in 1014, after a swift revolt that arose around Canute who fled with his army to Denmark. However, Canute returned to England two years later at the head of another Danish army and proceeded to defeat Ethelred and his son, Edmund Ironside, to regain the English crown in 1016. Canute ended up having a pretty spectacular and noteworthy career, would later gain the epithet of Canute the Great, and would later also succeed his brother as the king of Denmark in 1018 reclaiming the North Sea Empire that had been initially forged by Forkbeard. Interestingly, although many of the English nobles had initially wanted Canute gone due to his Viking lineage, once he retook the English throne in 1016, it was through this lineage, and thus that of his father, Forkbeard, that England was now insulated and protected against future waves of Viking raiders, many of them under his command. This greatly helped to restore the prosperity that had steadily eroded since the resumption of the Viking attacks back in the 980s. And another point in this story that I find fascinating and a little ironic is that upon his brother's death in 1018, the army he brought with him back to regain control over his father's Scandinavian domains included a huge proportion of English troops as well. Canute and his sons ruled England over a combined 26-year period from 1016 to 1042. Although the English throne would again revert to the House of Wessex under Ethelred's younger son, Edward the Confessor, this would not be the end of Svein Forkbeard's lineage again reappearing on the English throne. His daughter, Estrid Svein's daughter, was the mother of King Svein II, whose descendants continue to reign in Denmark to this day. One of them, Margaret of Denmark married James III of Scotland in 1469, introducing Forkbeard's bloodline into the Scottish royal house. And later on, when James VI of Scotland inherited the English throne in 1603, Forkbeard's descendants became monarchs of England once again, his bloodline extending into the present day. Amazing. So now for some parting thoughts on Svein Forkbeard. Of course, like his bloodlines that continue to this day, he is a complex historical character, as we have learned over the past four episodes, including this one. Overall, he hasn't really been studied too closely, and if you check online for lists of the most famous, influential, and powerful Viking leaders, he is rarely mentioned, if at all, which is difficult for me to understand how this could be the case. Maybe this is why he's so fascinating, because as we've learned, the reverberations of his lifetime are quite astounding. Was he brutal, bloodthirsty, power-hungry? Yes, certainly yes to all those things. Although, 
Part of this is attributed to the bad press that he got. According to the medieval historians that had an axe to grind against him, like Adam of Bremen and English historians noting his raids and eventual takeover of the kingdom. But what is also apparent is that in addition to being an accomplished warrior and military leader, he was also an extremely competent ruler that grew into having a sharp strategic and long-term vision. A person of magnetic charisma that people naturally gravitated towards, a sentiment that he leveraged extensively bordering on manipulative to get his way. As the son of King Harold Bluetooth, he was raised to believe that he too was a king to be, therefore imbued with a sense of entitlement that one could argue gave him an insatiable appetite for personal glory, or even megalomania. Not at all short on ambition, perhaps with a burning desire to upstage his father, with whom saying that they had a strained relationship is most definitely an understatement. Clearly, he was not one that would allow anything to get in the way of his goals, as seen when he fought his very own father for the Danish crown in 986. Then, once in power, began showing a savvy ability to rule, avoiding some of the key mistakes of his father. One of the most important being understanding how to tread the fine line in terms of religion building churches and supporting Christianity to keep external forces at bay, but didn't stoke internal division by aggressively imposing Christianity among the populace, instead showing a great deal of tolerance there, unlike the other Nordic leaders of the time. Perhaps his greatest weakness was that he initially lacked a long-term strategic vision, making missteps in his early career which nearly costed him everything threatening to render him into obscurity forever. But instead, he learned from his failures. Especially when instances of luck landed on his lap, he recognized these opportunities for what they were and then exploited them to the fullest degree. This is where I think Forkbeard's legacy shines. With a spectacular resurgence, where he began employing amazingly complex and long-term strategies to take down all his foes one by one, reasserting his hold on Denmark, adding Norway to his domains, thereby becoming the unrivaled power in Scandinavia, followed by his elaborate campaigns against Ethelred the Unready to become England's first Viking king. In the backdrop of the twilight of the Viking Age, Forkbeard ushered in one of its most monumental achievements. Yet, despite all this, as mentioned earlier, he remains a leader that is seriously understudied, begging the question of why this may be the case. Partly because in Scandinavia he's overshadowed by his father who is lauded for unifying Denmark, while in England he is overshadowed by the illustrious career of his son, King Canute the Great. But perhaps mostly because Forkbeard only held the position for a mere five weeks before his death and was never crowned. As such, that places him as one of the nation's shortest reigning monarchs and in the running for one of England's most forgotten kings, if not the title holder, helping to explain why there are so few monuments in his name in Britain. Although a few humble reminders exist, if you look hard enough, including the Swansea City Guildhall in Wales. It contains a number of Viking-inspired carvings 
one of which is modeled after Forkbeard, as well as the clock tower that features the prow of a Viking longship jutting out of each side as an ode to Forkbeard, who is thought to be the founder of Swansea, having established a trading post there, likely sometime during the early 990s. And lastly, there's a pub in England that bears his name, situated where he had set up his headquarters in 1013 in Gainsborough, the aptly named the Spain Forkbeard Pub. Now that we are done with Spain Forkbeard, I am so very excited to be moving on to our next prolific warlord. Born in ancient Macedonia in the 4th century BCE, someone that I would certainly place within the pantheon of the greatest military leaders to have ever existed. And no, I don't mean Alexander the Great, although he too would be on that list. I'm referring to his father, Philip II of Macedon, a name easily recognizable by most history enthusiasts, but perhaps less clear on the surprising details of his story. As ancient Macedonia stagnated and struggled to keep its head above water, on the verge of being swallowed up by the surrounding kingdoms and Greek city-states, Philip arose to become the king of Macedonia in 359 BCE, an immediate game-changer, using an artful combination of guile, cunning, and bold maneuvers, channeled through masterful diplomacy and military might to buy time and stave off disaster then undertaking a series of intensive reforms to not only transform his country, but also infuse numerous monumental military innovations into his army, asserting his nation as the terror of the Greek peninsula, the Balkans and beyond, unrivaled in its power and prestige. This and more to come in the next episode of the Warlords of History podcast. If you want to support the podcast, you can tell your family and friends about the show, please rate, review, and subscribe on whichever platform you happen to access the show on. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. And lastly, you can head over to the show's website, warlordsofhistory.com, where I'll include some additional info, like images and maps pertaining to this episode for your viewing pleasure. And where, if you're so inclined, you can also sponsor the show directly, with 10% of the monthly listener contributions going towards charitable causes, namely providing equipment, resources, and training towards sustainable agricultural practices in developing countries. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the episode. Theme music from audionautics.com Sound effects from zapsplat.com <laughs>